The reading this morning starts at Mark 15, right through to 16, verse 8. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Who are you, King of the Jews? He answered him, You say so? And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used, used to release four people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then, then what do you want me to do with the king, the, the one you call king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said, Why? What has he done wrong? And they all shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away to the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on the knees, they were paying him homage. After that, after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he, myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription on the charge written against him was, King of the Jews, they crucified two criminals with him, one on the right and one on his left. Those who had passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, the one, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself by coming down for the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that, he may, so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. Then it was noon. Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they, cried, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. 
Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite saw saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem, but it was already evening because of the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him, took him down and wrapped him in linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll a stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. They ran. They went out and ran from the tomb because because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them and they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Good morning. It's great to be with you as we finish this series in Mark's Gospel. And it's been, it's been more than a few weeks, hasn't it? It's been a few months as we've worked through uh, chapters, some of them quite long chapters. But it's been great to immerse ourselves in the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me start by saying two things. One, um, uh, the plan is to do Q&A at the end. Uh, and we can extend that over the series if you want to uh, dredge my memory banks. Um, but just as we want to make sense of who Jesus is, that's the question Mark has put before us. Who is Jesus? And I want us to be crystal clear on that, that we might respond in faith and not fear. 
Uh, and secondly, let me just say how encouraged I was to see this place filled uh, on Sunday afternoon last week, 80 people around tables uh, exploring how we might further reach our community for Christ. And as I chatted with people and as I looked through the survey results, um, as people shared their feedback, people felt uh, a sense of excitement and uh, uh, almost everyone felt a sense of being overwhelmed. Yeah, maybe that was you. If you're walking away going, whoa, that was so much. Uh, I don't even know how to make sense of that. Well, the mission focus group sat down on Tuesday night and tried to make sense of it. And praise be to God, we saw great overlap as we kind of looked at the various ideas that people had uh, and themes coming through. And I look forward to sharing about that more during Vision Month starting next week. But I, see, I think, you know, part of that overwhelmingness, if I could put it like that, is simply opening up a freedom to explore possibilities. Uh, and so I don't mind that we feel a bit daunted by that uh, as much as we celebrate how we might explore together various ways we might reach our community with a diversity of gifts to reach a diversity of people. That is a great thing. Now, I start speaking on being overwhelmed because that's how this chapter finishes. That's my segue, right? Uh, being overwhelmed is a very, very human experience. Put up your hand if you've never been overwhelmed. Yeah, good one. Uh, Mark puts before us, at the end of this chapter, the women who approach the tomb. And, and they don't finish with kind of like a, woohoo, he's risen. They finish in fear, absolutely overwhelmed. They are frozen. And that's how it finishes. Now, overwhelming moments can be both tragic and beautiful, but they are nonetheless life-defining. Uh, you might think of certain scenarios. I mean, I, I remember 10 years ago uh, living in this area in a house just around the corner here. Uh, I'd come home from hospital after Kel gave birth to Callum, and uh, Kel was still in hospital that night. I just remember lying at the, looking at the ceiling going, oh my goodness. I was so overwhelmed by all that had happened, and I felt completely unworthy to enter this next chapter as a dad. Uh, but I had to choose, I suppose, would I remain in that fear, being overwhelmed, feeling unworthy, or would I step forward in faith uh, to be the dad to Callum, uh, to, be a, to be a husband to Kel through all this? Uh, I've, uh, they're not always beautiful moments, these overwhelming moments, are they? Sometimes they are thrust upon us. I've sat with people as they have processed or tried to process the news from the doctors that all is not well. I've, uh, I've celebrated with people who have found out they've made it into a prestigious overseas university and that feeling of overwhelm, uh, being overwhelmed was, was of great joy. I have sat with people who have suddenly lost and gr they're grieving the loss of a loved one. Uh, these moments of up and down, of feeling overwhelmed, uh, quickly take over our thoughts. We lose a sense of kind of what's happening. We are just totally lost and stuck in that moment. What we do next is what Mark is putting before us. How will we respond to Jesus? This life-changing moment, this moment for the women particularly here at the end of this chapter, they know that life will never be the same again and we are left asking the question, will they respond in faith or will they be stuck in fear? Uh, look with me, uh, keep your Bibles open. Uh, at the very end, uh, starting from the end, we read... Go, tell his disciples, the angels say to the women. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. The end. <laughs> that is a surprising end, is it not? The, Mark is a master storyteller 
that has got to be a strange ending. Like if, the, if you're in a movie and the credits start rolling at that point, you're waiting for that extra kind of Marvel cut at the end to kind of make sense of it all, right? But that's it. That's where the gospel finishes. Did they respond? Did they go out and tell the disciples? It seems at one level they are disobedient to the angel as they are told of a promise that they will see Jesus in Galilee if they obey, if they listen. Do they? We don't know at one level. (laughs) This morning, I want to keep exploring the question, who is Jesus? And ask us, will we respond in faith or will we stay in fear? Now, some of you who have uh, a real Bible open in front of you will notice that it doesn't look like the end of Mark's Gospel. Yeah, even as kind of the, the words appeared on the screen, uh, you know, there's a little bit grayed out at the bottom, like what's happening next? There is more, is there not? Uh, let me just touch on that briefly before we really dig into this chapter. Uh, you will see kind of a little disclaimer. Uh, in this Bible here, there's a, a line at the end of verse 8 and then says some of the earliest manuscripts, MSS, conclude with 16 verse 8 and then the longer ending of Mark Uh, goes on. Now, I actually think this is a really good thing, that our Bibles uh, have the integrity to to say what's going on here. And and that is, uh, the Scriptures we have before us are a collection, uh, or are made up of a collection of manuscripts that we have through history. We don't actually have, I hope this is not a shock to you, we don't actually have the original Gospel that Mark wrote with his own hand. What we do have is thousands of manuscripts that when you put over one another through history, you can say, there is great overlap here. It gives us great confidence that we could trace those manuscripts, which are copies of the original, back to the source and say, this is what Mark actually wrote. Because as Mark wrote that and was dispersed throughout the early church, when you put them back together, you go, yes, I can see that this is true. This is good. If there was great diversity in the manuscripts, then you would say, well, I don't know kind of like what originally was written. It seems like the Chinese whispers has kind of taken over, right? But that's not what's happened. But in some cases, there is a variance in the manuscript tradition. You'll see that sometimes in the footnotes of uh, of your uh, Bibles, it will say kind of some MSS manuscripts will say this. And often those variations are of actually little difference, to be honest. They're just slight variations in words. But this one is a very significant variation. Uh, Now, for this one, it's worth saying that, um, and I'm going to quote here from uh, the seminal work of Brut Metzger, uh, who wrote a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. Um, He he would be a fun character, I reckon. Uh, He's done a lot of work looking at original manuscripts and comparing all the details. He said this, Clement of Alexandria, who is a second century theologian, and Oregon, who is also a second century theologian, show no knowledge of the existence of these verses referring to the end. Further, Eusebius, who was a historian in the 3rd century, Jerome, another 4th century translator, attest that the passage was absent from almost all Greek copies of Mark known to them. So why does this ending exist? Our best hunch is that Mark finishes so abruptly that the Christians actually really struggled with it. And so as the other Gospels came about, uh, they looked at sort of the ending of those Gospels and thought they would sort of just add a bit of an epilogue. Uh, And as they did that, it actually became quite popular and became sort of part of Mark's Gospel. Uh, And so it's been helpful that people with with sort of this textual criticism lens have gone back and done the work and say, actually, that's a late edition. So we've got the actual Mark's Gospel, but we've also got an account of how Christians, you know, added to that over time. Hope that's helpful. Hope that's helpful. 
So, let us begin looking at the climax of Mark's Gospel, and uh, rather than start at the very end, let's go back and look at the beginning of verse 15. And the way that I'm going to explore this is to look at the different characters uh, that Mark puts in this climactic end and see how they respond to who is Jesus. Mark takes us sort of behind the scenes, gives us an account of sort of why people are responding the way they are. And our first character here is none other than Pontius Pilate. Jesus has been brought before Pontius Pilate, who is a Roman governor, uh, by the chief priests and the Jewish officials. They drag Jesus before him uh, for this trial. And, you know, I can imagine, this is a pretty begrudging trial, I think, on the behalf of the Romans. They don't really care too much about these affairs, but it's causing a bit of a ruckus. And so Jesus is questioned. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, notice how Pilate here is sort of unwittingly confessing, in a sense, of who Jesus is. He's heard kind of the stories. It's not just kind of like, Jesus, what's going on? It's like, are you the king of the Jews? And later on, Pilate will even address the crowd to say, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He actually refers to Jesus as that. Now, Jesus is in real trouble here, because if he answers the question, yes, I am the king of the Jews, then he sets himself up in opposition to the Roman rule. If he says no, he kind of undoes all the ministry he's been doing as he talks about the coming of the kingdom of God. And so, in a classic Jesus way, he says, you say so. (laughs) Always enigmatic, always finding a way out of the traps before him. After all, he is sovereign, (laughs) really not. Uh, He puts the confession back in Pilate's mouth and uh, Pilate you know, one level, Pilate seems to be sympathetic to Jesus. Uh, for instance, we look at verse 14. Uh, Pilate says to, uh, to, the, to the crowd, to those accusing him, what has he done wrong? He knows he's being caught up in a bit of a fanfare here. What, what am I to do? Uh, it, it seems that at one level, he bends to the will of the people as though he were a weak man, but that would be too simplistic a reading. Pilate was known as a brutal uh, leader, He's already come to blows several times with the Jews over various things. On one case, he, he mandated that all Jews wear a, a, an armour plate bearing the crest of the Roman Empire. Uh, that was in opposition to um, the Jewish law that said they will not bear an image other than God. And so there was great protests and Pilate's response was swift and brutal. Uh, such, such protests kind of made it all the way to the emperor, uh, who was greatly displeased about sort of the, the disorder, because the Roman rule only works when there is order, is there not? And they have to choose between will they crush that or will they try and win the people over? And so Pilate finds himself in a tricky position where again sort of more fanfare is, is happening, more, more kind of uh, disorder, and, and he's trying to kind of keep the peace as it were. But in the end... His own fear to protect his power and prestige. The fear of man, as asserted by the will of the crowd, presses upon him. All of this makes for an armour that stops him exploring with a sense of faith the question he asks. That is, Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? If only that was a real question that he was asking. If only he was exploring in faith. But instead he remains in fear fear of man, fear of his own power and prestige. And the shouts of the crowd drown out the central question of the gospel, who is Jesus? 
He was so close. He was standing right before him. He had a chance to explore, but did not. Instead, he was handed over to be crucified. And that's how this scene finishes. Fear has won the day, and so Jesus is handed over in great injustice. Now, three times Mark uses this phrase in verse 1, 10, and 15, uh, Jesus was handed over. It makes it sound like Jesus is just kind of, is passive, is just kind of having this being done to him. And indeed, these things are being done to him through the wickedness of humanity. And yet, don't forget that just prior to this, Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. The being handed over is actually Jesus submitting to God's will not just to the hands of wickedness. So, Pilate was blind to see God's plan, God's revelation that was directly in front of him. He chose fear over faith. How will we respond? Who is Jesus? Will you answer in faith or will fear take over? Now, a second character was buried in that same sort of little narrative with Pilate, and that was the chief priests. Because before we just move on, it's worth noting that the driver of that narrative really is the chief priests. They're the ones that bring Jesus to Pilate. They're the ones in his ear uh, and shouting to the crowds and whipping up the hysteria, crucify him, crucify him. They seem to be in control here, but what is driving them? It's fascinating to see that Pilate knows what's driving them. Verse 10, for he, Pilate, knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. (laughs) Envy so easily hides behind false pretense, does it not? A kind of a a, a righteousness on the surface, but more of a self-righteousness that's manipulative. It leaks out, it corrupts one's character and decisions. This is another expression of fear. Why are they envious? We're led led to work that out just from reading the surface of Mark's Gospel. But if you were to read John's Gospel, for instance, we read in chapter 11, the words of the chief priests, if we let him go on like this, Jesus that is, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They are envious of Jesus because many are coming to Him. They are fearful that they will lose what they have. Jesus is a threat to the establishment. It's so base, so human. (laughs) Do we think we are any less susceptible to envy in the way that it shapes our decisions, in the way that informs what we think? There are all kinds of envy that drives us. Let me say this to you, Jesus will not give you the life that you envy. He will not do that. Will we choose fear or faith as we respond to Him? Well, as Jesus is handed over, the military take over to execute the order to crucify Jesus. I actually find this scene the most moving. Let me tell you a bit more about that. They also inadvertently confess, hail King of the Jews, again this phrase, but not in faith, but in utter mockery. There is a bitter irony that Mark is capturing here. The soldiers acknowledge in both word and deed Jesus' true identity, but in macabre sport, 
the soldiers drape a purple robe on Jesus. They put a, a crown of thorns upon him. And they, they on bended knee, hail Jesus, King of the Jews. But it is not in faith. They beat him. They spit on him. They mock him. I find this utter disrespect for anyone absolutely gut-wrenching, but especially for, for Jesus, because he is all that they say he is. I can barely imagine the restraint that Jesus must have exerted at this point, for he has left the glories of heaven. He is the King of heavens, the King of kings, and there he is in the dirt, having given himself to a people to serve them, to love them. And this is how they respond, and not just kind of in rejection, but they mock him for who he really is. Oh, he could have just clicked his fingers and revealed in transfigurated glory, actually, yes, I am this king, how dare you mock me? <laughs> Kiss the sun, lest you regret it, right? Why would Jesus endure this? How did he endure that? Why would he subject himself to such disdain and mockery? Three times I'm going to ask this question. Because what goes on from here is the continuing of the execution of the plan to crucify Jesus. Mark very matter-of-factly speaks of how this unravels. Verse 20, after they've mocked him and beat him, they led him out to crucify him. Mark does not emotionally manipulate us here, he just, in simple way, says they led him out to crucify him. Verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, a way to kind of subdue the pain uh, even slightly, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes. That's a very simple way of describing what was very well known through, the, uh, through early history as the most cruel and horrifying punishment. Now, every totalitarian government or regime needs an apparatus of terror. This was Rome's. This was the way they kept the peace, and it was especially reserved for the most heinous crimes, for, for non-Roman citizens. And as described by a Roman official in the first century, he says this, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. It was a deliberate political means to crush anyone who would oppose the laws of Rome. Crucifixion was a, was a way of, of, of killing someone, uh, often beginning with, with the flogging that we hear about at the end of the trial with Pilate, flogging with, uh, with whips, with, with bone and metal and glass tied into them that would often it, kill people, not often, sorry, it would sometimes kill people before they even get to the cross. It, it would open up their chest such that they would be bleeding at this point quite significantly. And then they were laid upon a cross where nails were driven through, not arteries, but through the bones of their wrists and their feet. So they wouldn't die from the pain or of, the kind of, of what was inflicted in that moment, but they would die from either hypovolemic shock or exhaustion or heart failure, as they hung sometimes for days on a cross naked before everyone who would see that is the way of shame. 
That's what Rome will do to you when you oppose it. Crucifixion was a ghastly form of death, excruciatingly painful, prolonged and socially degrading. The thought that God's Messiah would suffer a cross of shame, as the writer of Hebrews will later describe it, was so scandalous that it was a stumbling block for those who might come to consider trusting in Jesus, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. Now, this is surely the most fearsome thing that almost any human could go through. And we see simply a a resolute, near-silent Jesus, trust in God as He was handed over to this. Why would He endure this? Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so so He opened not His mouth. While He is enduring this, the crowds around Him made up of the chief priests who instigated a lot of this, the crowds that they've whipped up, the military, say this, let the King of Israel, again, this kind of phrase, this kind of false confession, let the King of Israel come down and save Himself, that we might believe. Now, that Jesus came to preach the good news of the Kingdom, so that people would believe. Again, Is this not the greatest temptation for Jesus to to skip out on that which He is suffering through, for the sake that they might believe? And yet, Jesus endured this, this cup of suffering, as He had prayed just the night before. Not your will, not my will, but yours. Why is Jesus enduring this? When Jesus does finally speak, He says these harrowing words, Eloi, Eloi, lamak saphthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? They are gut-wrenching words. They are words that express the existential crisis that Jesus finds himself in. So full was the experience of standing under the judgment of God that he felt utterly overwhelmed. Jesus here is overwhelmed to the point of saying to God, I no longer experience you. I feel utterly abandoned. For he is not just suffering as a crucified criminal with the rest. Well, he's not a criminal. He is suffering because He has chosen to step into the very judgment of God for our sake. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, He made the one, God made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There is Jesus on the cross in our very position, so that when we do stand before God, we are not crushed by our iniquity. We are not judged for our sin, of which we could not stand. For there is Jesus in our place saying, I have taken that price. I have absorbed fully the wrath of God. And as Jesus takes on that wrath of God, it so stretches His relationship with the Father that in that moment, He does not experience the love of God, for He is so fully overwhelmed by the wrath of God. 
Again, we ask, why would Jesus do this? This is not just happening to Jesus. As I've already referred to, that night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, take this cup from me. Who, Who would want to go through with that? But he says, your will be done, not mine. And at the very hinge point of Mark, you might remember a sort of a month or so back, as we looked at verses, at chapters 9 and 10, in those moments, Peter confesses who Jesus is as the Christ, but he fails to understand that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again. And three times Jesus affirms that this is the way of glory, this is the way of God. Uh, the most kind of explicit is, uh, is in, verse, in chapter 20, uh, where he describes it in detail. Verse 33, or starting from 33. So we go, going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise again after three days. Jesus knew this, but why? If we look at the end of chapter 10, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Uh, that is, as you would expect, a king to come down from heaven onto earth and to sort of lap up the praise of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is, that Jesus willingly gave himself up so that you would have life and not death. The way the writer of Hebrews sums this up is like this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So while Jesus is experiencing this moment of abandonment of the Father, where he is so overwhelmed by the wrath of God, he did that, he he did that, he endured the cross for the joy set before him. His love for you was what drove him to experience that. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God who chose to give up His life, who chose to endure the wrath of the Father so that you would be forgiven, so that you would have life and not death. The two final responses in this chapter come from the most unlikely people. The first, the centurion, the military commander, probably part of those that mocked him. He would have put to death many, no doubt, on the cross. But as he witnesses what is happening, the passion of Christ, the crying out of Jesus, he is overwhelmed. As Jesus Jesus breathes his last, verse 39, the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There was something about the way that Jesus died and that kind of exposed the heart of Jesus exposed why he was doing this. There was something profound in this that drops the centurion to his knees in a confession of, surely this is the Son of God. No human has breathed that phrase, 
that title of Jesus, that affirmation of who Jesus is, until this point, a Gentile, a part of the regime that actually put him on the cross. He confesses, surely this is the Son of God. He is not acting in fear. He is brought to his knees, overwhelmed by the experience, by the person of Jesus. And he confesses with faith, truly this man was the Son of God. This is extraordinary. Here is the very beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ made known to all, not just Jews but Gentiles, so that all might believe. The centurion responds in faith, will we? Will we respond in faith? The second unlikely people to respond are the women. It is fascinating, is it not, to ask the question, where are you disciples? The disciples that we've come to love and sort of, you know, in their ups and downs, in their kind of, in their very human responses, in their getting things wrong, in their kind of being built up and taught and being so close to Jesus, we've walked alongside them for 15 chapters. And even as Peter uh, denies Jesus, just as Jesus said he would, we long to see kind of them regather. But we love to see them even on the sidelines. You know, just by you know, holding on by sort of a thread, as it were, but they are totally absent. And instead, we have these women who are the first to honor Jesus. They go to honor his body, uh, they go to embalm him as, as they would. Uh, and, and they even, as they approach, they haven't even got the details worked out. They're like, How are we going to open the, open the stone here? They're kind of, they're coming, they're they're so kind of gripped by all that's happened, so overwhelmed, they're going through the motions of what you would normally do, except this Jesus is behind a guard and a a stone rolled over the tomb. But before they can answer that question and work out what they're going to do or how they're going to do it, they come to an open tomb. And in that tomb is a man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed as you would be. Don't be alarmed. Uh, if going to angel school, that must be kind of the, the first thing they teach you. People are going to freak out first thing you say, do not be afraid, right? You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. Yes, public knowledge. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Now, that is big, big news. You don't say to that, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) You don't have a category for resurrection. It is easy for us 2,000 years later to go, oh, yeah, resurrection, that's part of the creed, that's part of what we do, it's what we believe, easy, right? No, it, it is a category that did not exist for these people who first encountered the news, the good news that Jesus has risen. And so they stand absolutely bewildered. Not only do they have questions of like, how is that even possible? But they have radical questions of, what does that even mean? What do you mean He's risen from the dead? Now, Jesus had spoken openly about this. Well, not openly, to those around Him, the disciples especially. But yet nobody really thought that it would happen in front of them. They are so gripped with fear that they seem to disobey. They are so gripped with fear that they run and hide and say nothing. Now, what I find fascinating too in Mark's account of 
finishing with these women is that they are women. In the first century, their testimony was not even to be received in court. And you would think if you were writing a gospel, and Mark, by all accounts, is the first gospel writer, if you are writing a gospel, you want to finish strong. You want to finish with, you know, and heaps of people came to see the risen Lord Jesus, lots of men, lots of men of power, lots of men who kind of, whose testimony would be received well, saw the risen Lord Jesus, responded in faith, and happily ever after, right? He finishes with women who respond not in faith in this moment, the end. Why? Maybe that's how it happened. That's what I believe. Mark wrote down what happened. Even as though people might not receive it well, that's what happened. So that's what he wrote. And let this shock us into the reality, the life-changing reality that ought to overwhelm us. Because if Jesus really has risen from the dead then he is no longer in the category of just a good teacher. He is no longer in the category of someone who just expresses forgiveness. I forgive you. Easy to say, right? He is no longer in the category of those who are just building a following, uh, one amongst many. He is Lord. And the sudden realization of that that He is indeed the Son of God, the King of kings, the one who wields power over sin, death, disease. It leaves them frozen. I could imagine being amongst the very first hearers of Mark's Gospel. Imagine you're in like a house church. You've been invited by a friend and someone is reading out Mark's Gospel. That's what he intended. Mark intended that it would be read out as a story. And as the person reading out Mark's Gospel finishes at verse 8, <laughs> several things would happen. First of all, the ending of the story is actually rolling on. The very fact that you're in that first house church suggests that the women did not stay in silence, but they did go on to tell. And that's the very reason you're in a house church right now hearing about Jesus. But also... Would we not be overwhelmed by the very fact that it began with, right back in the beginning, and we sort of, we hear it in one chunk, right? Mark begins his gospel by saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The whole thing is the beginning. (laughs) And as you hear it, you are now drawn into the story. You are participating in the God who made himself known in the world. And you are now thrust with the same question that the women have thrusted upon them. Who is Jesus and how will you respond? Will you stand in fear or will you respond in faith? For surely as we as hearers, as much as the women here, you cannot go on living like nothing happened. You cannot simply go, okay, You either say, that is a lie, or you say, whoa, death has been undone, sin has been forgiven, new life is now received, Jesus has real power over death, and everything that Jesus said of himself is now vindicated as he is now enthroned, not with a crown of thorns, not with the mocking purple robe, but in the open and empty tomb. 
For Jesus chose to enthrone himself through the cross for us and rise again so that we would see he is who he says he is. It slices through every claim that all religions are the same. It says, proclaims loudly and publicly that this is the Son of God. Will we choose faith over fear? Fear of our failures before Jesus. Fear of us standing before God and having our sin exposed. Fear of enduring mockery because of the foolishness of the cross. Fear of circumstances as though we are in control of all things. We are not. Will we choose faith over all these things? To say Jesus really is in control, He really is Lord and He deserves every part of our life laid down before Him in worship. Because friends, Jesus chose us, He chose the cross. He chose to love us and endure all of that so that we might have life. Let us respond to Him in faith and not fear. Let me pray. Father, let us be overwhelmed by all that you have done for us in Christ. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So let our eyes be fixed on him, the perfecter of our faith. Because he now sits at your right hand. He has made your glory, your faithfulness, your love, your mercy known to us. Father, let that flow through every part of our life that we might live for you in faith. Exposing us those parts of us that are acting in fear, that we hide in the darkness, so that we might live proudly and faithfully and boldly for you. Thank you for forgiveness of sins, that you would call us a child of yours. We pray it in Jesus' mighty and forever name. Amen.